Recently, I returned home to visit my mother and father over Thanksgiving. They live in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's where I grew up. And so one morning, I uh, went out uh, for a walk. And as I was walking through the neighborhoods of my childhood, a car came up and stopped, and the window rolled down. And there was a lady inside the car. She, she said, sir, I'm sorry to bother you, but uh, I have lost a little black dog. And the dog is a, is a Pomeranian mix, and the dog's name is Gracie. Have you seen Gracie? And I said, well, ma'am, I'm sorry, I, I have not seen Gracie, but I will keep my eyes out for little Gracie as I continue my walk. And then this lady proceeded to tell me the story, the reason she was looking for little Gracie. And apparently, as they were leaving Greensboro for Thanksgiving vacation, maybe to visit family in some other part of the state, they decided to stop off at a local restaurant and have lunch. And they had packed their truck full of their belongings, and also little Gracie was there in the truck. And so they left Gracie in the truck with all their stuff, and they went in to have lunch. And while they were having lunch, their truck was burglarized. All of their belongings were stolen. And the concern that this lady had was primarily for what happened to little Gracie. Was little Gracie taken along with their belongings, or was little Gracie just simply uh, let out of the truck to wander aimlessly amongst the dangerous uh, neighborhood there? And so, I'm a dog person. Now, there are some times when I would like to pay someone to take my dogs, but generally speaking, you can laugh. That was a joke. Don't call PETA. Uh, generally speaking, we, we love our animals, and you know, to lose a pet like that is, is really kind of hard on one's heart. And so this family was devastated over losing little Gracie, and they were just out frantically looking for Gracie in the hopes that Gracie had just been let out by the robbers and was somewhere to be found. And so I finished my walk and I began to think, you know, we live in a really cruel world. There are really mean people that only care about themselves and that don't care for others that are out there ready to do us harm. And I w was thinking as, as I walked and as I, I was looking for little Gracie, what is this world coming to that here in the holiday season someone can be so, so hard-hearted to not only steal someone's belongings, obviously going to visit family to give thanks, but also do harm perhaps to a little dog like Gracie. It just reminded me that we live in a world that is very much suffering the effects of the curse that we find in Genesis chapter 3. And the story of little Gracie, in many respects, though very significant to this family, is 
not a very significant expression of the curse of the fall on creation because there are much worse things that we face in this world that is suffering the effects of man's sin and the curse upon creation. Look back at the hymn we opened with, very last stanza, second line, well, the second line to the last of the last stanza, and we sang this about us as we are rejoicing in the Lord, ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. And I don't think there's anyone here today who would say, no, no, this world is all great. There is no strife in this world. Is anyone here that would make that claim? No, there's plenty of strife to go around. And it's because of this, the effects of the curse of the fall. But here, I think the hymn is right, though. And I think that line out of joyful, joyful, we adore thee is exactly what Isaiah is telling us in Isaiah chapter 35. And today we're going to be looking at the joy, but acknowledging that today we experience the joy of the Lord in the midst of strife. But we do experience the joy of the Lord as we are making our way on this highway that is only for the ransomed of the Lord and is a highway that terminates, that is, ends home where there will be gladness and everlasting joy for the people of God. And so is, is there the possibility of gladness and joy and not sorrow and sighing in this world that is under the curse of the fall? And Isaiah says, absolutely there is. And here's what Isaiah says. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. It says 10 verses, so I'm going to read them for us. Glorious verses. Listen to this. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. 
and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No one shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sadness shall flee away. Amen. Does that make you happy? Does that make you joyful? That's Isaiah's purpose. In giving these words of encouragement to us, we're victors in the midst of strife, but we're victors on our way. And I love that with everlasting joy upon our heads. Let's pray. Father, I know there are individuals here today that are struggling with some difficult issues. Strife seems as a pleasant word in light of the devastation that might be what some here are undergoing. And at some level, at some degree, each one of us here today is dealing with some troubling, hard aspect of the effects of the curse upon not only this creation, but upon us. And so, Lord, we need so much to hear this joyous word. And I pray today that you would remind us that we are a people with hope, Our future is one of gladness and joy, not sorrow and sighing. You're in the business of restoring. You're in the business of ransoming. You're in the business of promoting joy and rejoicing in our lives. So work in us today, I pray. Amen. Well, the sermon outline is pretty simple. You'll find it somewhere in your your bulletin. I forgot the page number. It's the effect of the fall, <clears throat> an ongoing effect of the fall, I might, <laughs> might tell you. But it's simply this, first point, restoration, second point, ransom, third point, uh, rejoicing. And so let's, let's look at what Isaiah has to say about restoration, that, that the effects of the curse that is upon creation one day will be completely Reverse, and so we want to look at, at restoration. Now, the spring of Engedi is a real life oasis in the midst of a wilderness, and the wilderness is the Judean wilderness there in Palestine, in, in the Holy Lands. A beautiful stream with cool, 
flowing water, lush vegetation, and there are caves around where travelers can be refreshed and also uh, take refuge there. I mean, it's an oasis in the midst of a barren wilderness. You may remember David took refuge there at the spring of Engedi. And in the middle 90s, Renee and I, yes, your pastor and his wife, took refuge in the spring of Engedi as we were on our tour of the Holy Lands. And not only did we have the best falafel sandwich I've ever had in my life, uh, there at the Spring of Engedi Inn, I think that's what it was called. But we were able to go and just spend time in this beautiful oasis in the midst of a barren uh, wilderness. Well, I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 35, this little chapter, just 10 verses, as an oasis. This life giving chapter in the midst of devastation. And a wasteland. Verses or chapters 1 through 34, the book of Isaiah, are God's judgment upon the nations. And that culminates in chapter 34 with Edom being judged and becoming a wasteland. And then chapters 36 on recounts all sorts of things, but, but certainly the next 10 or so chapters recounts the devastating consequences of Israel's sin where Assyria comes and invades Israel, eventually destroying Jerusalem and exiling God's people to Babylon. Remember our study of the book of Daniel? Well, Isaiah was writing in light of that coming disaster. And they're tucked right between the nations being judged and made a wasteland and even Judah and Israel being judged and made a wasteland. There's chapter 35, this oasis, this good news of great joy for the people of God. Think with me for just a moment about the impact Isaiah 35 might make upon those Israelites that had been exiled to Babylon. And they longed to go home, but there was a really powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, that would not let them go. And there was a very significant desert, the Arabian desert, between Babylon and Jerusalem that was impassable in ancient times. And they hear these words from Isaiah. Straight away, the people of God are going to return home in safety. Is that not refreshing news? Let me ask you this. Is this not refreshing news for you today? As you are a child of God on the highway to heaven, a victor already in Christ Jesus, but in the midst of strife. Don't we need to be reminded of the salvation of our God today and the realities of it? What's really interesting about the Judean wilderness is that when a rain shower comes, and the rain showers do come to that wilderness, all of a sudden the dry creek beds are overflowing with running water. Little plants begin to sprout up just almost 
instantly. It looks for just a moment like life has returned to the wilderness. And then as quickly as the life of the wilderness comes, the heat comes and all of it goes away. It dries up and the vegetation is gone and it's a wilderness once again. Well, think about what Isaiah is saying here in this passage. That there is a time that is coming when the temporary life that comes about because of the rain that falls upon the wilderness but is quickly gone will not quickly be gone but will last There is going to be a great transformation. There is going to be a great change that will take place where the wilderness itself, the the dry, barren places, the wastelands will be as life-giving as the spring of Engedi. That's the wonderful promise that we have here in Isaiah And instead of the wilderness being a place of sorrow and sighing, this change will make the wilderness a place of gladness and rejoicing. Change forevermore. The effects of the fall push back. And let's look at this change that Isaiah speaks about. God overturning the effects of the fall such that even the wilderness springs forth with life. Look, look at verses 1 and 2. There, there we find that this transformation is depicted by abundant budding and blossoming. The new normal for the wilderness when this, this radical transformation takes, takes place is the crocus will just blossom out of control. The crocus, some think it's a rose. And further, the text goes on to talk about the glory of Lebanon will describe the wilderness. Lebanon is up in the northwestern border regions of, of the Holy Lands, and, they were, and Lebanon was known for its beautiful cedars and lush vegetation. The wilderness will be like Lebanon, and the glory of Lebanon with its dense forests will describe the wilderness when this change takes place. And then Carmel, the the Carmel Mountain range, and then just to the north of it, the Jezreel Valley, and Sharon, the breadbasket of the Holy Lands, the fertile ground where vegetables and fruits are grown year-round. The desert will be like that one day productive and life-giving. And notice how this, how this change comes about. It is not something that the desert produces. It is something that is given to the desert, verse 2. And it beautifully reminds us of the grace of God in reversing the effects of the fall such that the wilderness becomes like an oasis, paradise restored by the grace of God. And those Israelites living in exile, those Israelites seeing devastation all around, those Israelites thinking life is, I'm living my life in the wilderness here, that the wilderness is going to be radically changed one day. That all the things that were harsh and hard about life in the wilderness will be pushed back. And will no longer plague me. 
the world will become the paradise that it was created to be, and the majesty and glory and power of the Lord will accomplish this. And this is the promise we see in the Bible of a new heavens and new earth, isn't it? That God's restorative, redeeming work even extends to creation itself when the curse of the fall, when the, the curse of Genesis chapter 3 will be reversed. And God's people will live in a paradise. But it's not only about creation being restored, it's about sinners, fallen mankind being restored. Look at verses 3 and 4 as we consider Isaiah talking about the effects of the curse being reversed in people like you and me. Think of someone who is, is hopelessly trying to survive in a wilderness. The, the harsh environment is taking a toll on them, and they're thirsty, and they're weak, and it is as if death is right before them. And Isaiah describes this in the text, uh, someone you know, clinging uh, to life as one having weak hands, feeble knees, anxiety, and fear. That, that describes what oftentimes we experience living in this world under the effects of the fall. But all of that is going to be reversed. The, 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 the misery of, the, of harsh living in the wilderness is going to be removed. In verse 4, tells us how He, God, will come and save you. This, this little phrase in verse 4, I believe, is a promise of Messiah to come. The very celebration that we are currently enjoying here at Christmas time, celebrating the, the, the first advent of Messiah Christ. And of course, we know that there's a second advent, the second coming, when all things will be brought to their final conclusion. All things will be gathered under Christ. And right here in Isaiah, we see this, this, this promise of Messiah coming to save God's people. In just a few chapters later in Isaiah, we read this in Isaiah 42, that Messiah will be given as a covenant for the the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And we see in this servant song passage in, in Isaiah chapter 42 that people are going to be restored. And the effects of the curse will be pushed back. And let's look back at Isaiah 35 and verses 3 through 7 at, at the result of the saving work of God in restoring people. Look at what the text says, that the weak hand will be strengthened, the feeble knees will be made firm, the inner man will be so strengthened that anxiety and fear will be chased away, it will be vanquished. 
those who are spiritually blind, those who are unable to really see life as it really is, those who are, are blind and really cannot behold the glory of God in creation and certainly cannot understand the saving work of God in His revealed Word, the Scriptures, they will be so changed that the blinders will come off and they will be able to see life as it truly is. They will be able to see God for who He claims to be in His Word. They will be able to see the saving work of Christ, and He is the Savior, they'll be able to see their sin and repent of it. You see, this reversal of the effects of the curse deals with our eyesight so that we can behold the glory of God, so we can see the saving work of God and respond to it. And we also see that, that our deafness will be reversed, and we'll be able to hear the, the, the God's story, the good news of the gospel, to hear it in our hearts and to respond. The lame will leap for joy. Those who are incapable of doing anything for God's glory will be given the ability to serve God and to serve their fellow man for the glory of God. They'll be able to run, walk, work, go, and leap in freedom for God. And then we learn something interesting that the mute, the mute who cannot vocalize one single note in praise to God, will become members of the choir, a choir that would make Liz proud. And they will be given the ability to sing praise to where praise should be, and that is to sing praise to God and to encourage one another and to proclaim God's truth. Do you see the effects of the saving work of Messiah upon reversing the effects of the fall, not only in creation, but in humanity, in people like you and me? Radical change is what Isaiah is speaking about here in this beautiful oasis of chapter 35. The curse is overturned in us by the saving work of Messiah. And verses 6 and 7 pictures this, this incredible, radical change in former curse-ridden sinners with no hope, no future, on their way to hell by picturing it like a lifeless wilderness all of a sudden pouring forth with life-giving water, like a hot sand that when you walk on it, burns your feet, be becoming like a pool of fresh, cool, thirst-quenching, life-giving water. A wilderness, a life that is so free from bondage to those things that might take its life, not physical life, but spiritual life. Those prey that, that make their bed in the grasses and keep the grasses down. 
There will be such freedom from spiritual harm that there will be no prey to keep the grass down. And the life will be like reeds and rushes growing because there, there's no prey there to, to lay there and keep it down. Life-giving marsh, teeming with life, that, will describe, that describes the result of God's saving work in his people. Not only does the dry, barren wilderness experience the reverse of the curse and life-giving water flows from it, but dry, barren people, dead in their sin, experience the saving, restorative work of God. And, and, and life-giving water flows from them because of He who comes to save you. So how does this transformation, how does this change take, take place? Well, verses 9 and 10 tells us it uses two words, and this really is the main point. It's interesting. Let me just say this in verse 4. <laughs> that verse 4 basically says that part of God's saving work is to bring his vengeance and recompense upon his enemies. And so God is going to destroy his enemies and our enemies so that his people will be able to enjoy freedom from the wicked. But the main point that Isaiah makes is in verses 9 and 10, as he looks at two words here, the redeemed in verse 9, and then the ransomed of the Lord, that phrase in verse 10. Now, redemption is easily understood or simply understood as deliverance. Israel redeemed from Egypt, delivered from bondage in Egypt. Israel would be redeemed from exile in Babylon. They will return to Jerusalem. And so Isaiah's prophecy here in 35 will be temporally fulfilled in, at the end of Daniel as the people, and, or Ezra and Nehemiah rather, describes the people returning home. And then he uses the term ransom, the ransom of the Lord. And the term ransom relates to a payment being made to get something back. Who are the redeemed? The redeemed are the ransomed of the Lord. What are you willing to pay? Let me ask you this. What are you willing to pay to get some cherished item back that you have lost or has been taken from you? When the lady that lost little Gracie or was looking for little Gracie, when that car came up beside me and the window rolled down, I noticed there was a sign affixed to the window. And in big red letters, it said, Reward. All right, so how much would you pay to get a Pomeranian mix? Not even a pure breed, a Pomeranian mix, whatever the world that is. Uh, a Pomeranian, probably sheds. What, what would you pay? It probably eats food and then the other thing. So what would you pay to get little Gracie back if you were the owner of little Gracie? When that car rolled up, I saw that sign there, and the lady began to talk to me, and I was like, 
$3,000 reward. I might pay $3,000 to get rid of something with four legs that loves me. $3,000. People have given, given money to this family. They had, they had probably emptied their bank accounts as a reward for little Gracie. That dog, nine-year-old dog, what's the life expectancy of a Pomeranian mix? Does anybody know? $3,000. I thought to myself, what can I do with $3,000? I looked for little Gracie. I did. Little Gracie, come home. Come here. I was thinking about $3,000. I wouldn't have taken that $3,000, but that was kind of funny. I actually didn't think that, but anyway, I quickly got, quickly got over that. What, what would you give to get back something that you cherish, that you had lost and been taken from you? Well, this family is willing to give $3,000 to get little Gracie back. Jesus came to ransom to God a people, a people that were fallen, a people that were just riddled with the effects of the curse, probably a people that shed, a people that eat, and a people marred and broken. And Jesus came and paid a great deal more than 3,000 bucks to get back a people that turned from him, that rebelled against him. You know, I, I love coffee, and the other day I was making coffee and accidentally hit one of my favorite coffee mugs. And it was a ceramic mug. And it was one of those mugs you buy at these pottery places that was numbered. So I was told it was an expensive mug. And I hit the thing, and it dropped and broke. And I unceremoniously took that mug, that broken mug that now was, was useless to me. And I just threw it right in the garbage. Didn't think twice about it until I started working on this sermon. And then I thought, huh. What would I pay? I'd probably have to call 311. That's the information number for the city services. And ask where the garbage truck took my garbage on Monday. <laughs> you know, what would I pay to get that broken coffee mug? You know how much I like coffee. How much would I pay to get that broken coffee mug back? That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And you know what? A lot of people, it sounds ridiculous for Jesus to pay what he paid to get me back. A whole lot more valueless in the grand scheme of things than a broken coffee mug. At least you could make jewelry out of a broken coffee mug, right? Women, some of you bought some jewelry made out of broken things. 
Yet Jesus gave his life. He gave his life. He ransomed me with his own life. He ransomed you by the giving of his own life. Matthew 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. John 5, 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, speaking of Christ, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What did Jesus pay that we would be saved? Who are the redeemed? Verse 9. They are the ransomed of the Lord. Verse 10. Ransomed by an infinitely valuable payment. Jesus suffered the ultimate wilderness and paid the ultimate ransomed price that you and I might be ransomed and enjoy the ultimate oasis, paradise in heaven. God overturning the effects of the fall in creation is a reason that we should have hope as we look to the future one that will be overcome with gladness and everlasting joy and the ransom price that was paid for you and me to be on that highway that we'll talk about in just a moment that terminates in heaven itself, the ultimate oasis, is another reason that we are to look to the future with certainty and hope, knowing that there's gladness and everlasting joy upon our heads. Restoration, ransom, leads to rejoicing, doesn't it? Living here in the South, we very rarely encounter toll roads. But during our summer vacation, we were in the San Francisco area, and we encountered toll roads. But modern, it's the coolest thing, modern technology... I don't know why. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been on a toll road. You used to plunk change, you know, in the in the toll booth. But but there in San Francisco, in many places, they have this fast track system, and you can prepay your toll. So our rental car had this fast track system. We and I and we were going to cross the opposite direction, Golden Gate Bridge, into San Francisco. We had to pay the toll, and I prepaid my toll. And so I was just able to get in my car. We left Sausalito, whoop, right across the bridge. Didn't even hardly slow. I, I, I obeyed the speed limit. Didn't even hardly slow down. And a little camera there took a picture of my license plate, and it had already been prepaid. So boom, good to go. No fine, no nothing, no stopping. It was great. 
Have you ever been on a road like that? Fast track? Well, Isaiah describes a toll road in verse 8. And everyone on this road has already had their, their toll prepaid. It's the ransom price of Christ's life for you and for me. And we get on this road, go through the toll booth. There is one. Get on this road, and our balance is zero because it's already been paid. And this road in verse 8 is called the way of holiness. It's the way of those who have been declared justified. Pardon of sin, guilt-free, right standing before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this way is for the clean, those who are united to Christ. And let's look at the characteristics of this highway. It's an exclusive highway. Notice what the text says, that the unclean, that is, those who are not ransomed, are prohibited, in verse 8, from being on this, this road. It is for the ransom of the Lord. It is for the church in brotherly union, in brotherly communion, to be on this highway leading to heaven itself. Secondly, it is a clearly marked highway. And I just love this because this, hi- the, uh, <laughs> this highway is for the, even the foolish Even the stupid ransom person, they can't find their way out of a wet paper bag, cannot miss this way, and once they're on it, they can never make a wrong turn. That's what the text says. The foolish can't miss it. And third, it's a safe highway. All the dangers and obstacles that we would think should be there in the wilderness, all of that has been turned back. No heat, no predators, no rough terrain, no poor road conditions, no adverse weather, no lack of provisions. It's all been eliminated. And fourth, it's a direct highway. No one in the ancient world would set out from Babylon and go straight across the Arabian wilderness to Jerusalem. They would die. But not so with the highway and the way this highway that Isaiah speaks about because of the effects of the fall have been turned back in the wilderness. The road goes straight from from point A to point B, a direct route to heaven itself, no obstacles. And this highway is one of gladness and everlasting joy. You know, there's so much sorrow and sadness in our world today. And this is even true for the ransomed of the Lord. And sometimes we can get caught up in the sorrow and sadness and become discouraged and lose hope. We hear stories like little Gracie and stories that are many times worse than that. The the curse suffered by creation and humanity affects everything. And there's really no wonder so many people are hopeless today, look to the future with uncertainty, and all they see is sorrow and sighing. But the reality for you and me as the ransom of the Lord is that we are victors in the midst of the strife. And we are people that look to the future as bad as it may look on the outside. We're people that look to the future with hope. We're people that look for the future, a certain future. We're people 
that look to the future and we see gladness and everlasting joy. We experience it in part today and we see it being the reality of our destiny. The curse is being overturned and we are people who rejoice. And I think that's the that is where I want us to, to kind of come to today is, is not to just simply gloss over the difficulties of life, but to see that by God's grace, we have so much more. There is joy today, and there is a hopeful and joy-filled future for us. I love what E.J. Young writes, how glorious How filled with eternal bliss will be the future for God's redeemed. And you know, as we contemplate that future today, doesn't it promote a sense of victory and joy in the midst of strife for you and me? And then one of my favorite churchmen, Samuel Rutherford, who was one of the four delegates from Scotland to be a Westminster divine at the assembly in the 17th century that produced our confession of faith, a stellar figure in church history. And Samuel Rutherford has written written something so beautiful in, in light of all that Isaiah says causing joy in you and me. And I just want to read it to you. Rutherford says, think you it will be a small honor to stand before the throne of God and the Lamb and be clothed in white and be called to the marriage supper of the Lamb and be led to the fountain of living water and to come to the wellhead, even God himself, and get your fill of the clear, cold, sweet refreshing waters of life, the king's own well, and to put up your own hand. Listen to this. I love this. And to put up your own hand to the tree of life and take God's choicest fruit. That which was forbidden is now encouraged. Take it down and eat the sweetest apple in God's heavenly paradise. Jesus Christ, your life and your Lord. And then Rutherford says, up, up your heart. Shout for joy. Your king is coming to fetch you. To your father's house. Father, my prayer for myself and for these dear loved ones is to be reminded of all that waits for us in paradise and to respond with joy that is being poured upon our heads even today. 
In Christ's name, amen.